You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell, and my guest in episode 76 is a respected veteran of the Australian mining industry. Tim Crossley has done a bunch of work at the executive level in the largest resource companies in the world. Among them all, his headline job is probably the time he spent as Chief Operating Officer of BHP's iron ore business in Western Australia. Very recently, Tim was a guest at an event hosted by Wimmark, Women in Mining and Resources Queensland, and I was invited along to grill him about his career and the lessons he learned along the way. Tim gave us some great insight into what it takes to make the transition from technical doer to technical leader through the various levels of senior management and ultimately to the executive level. As he talks us through his story, we learn about the strengths Tim developed and the weaknesses he had to manage. And he was incredibly honest about the sacrifices he made in his personal life along the way. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tim Crossley from a live event hosted in Brisbane by Wim Mark. So thank you very much for the invitation to be here and for the introduction. But the uh, the the really important guest is Tim today, and we are uh, going to beat you up, Tim. Are you ready for this? I'm not sure if you know what you've got yourself in for, but this is our plan with you. It's pretty simple. We are going to suck you of all of your experience and and wisdom that you've acquired over the years and leave you exhausted. Is that okay? You're okay with that. So you started your career. A long time ago, as a young scientist, did you think when you started your career that it would end up to the point in 2018 where you've filled the roles that you have, you're doing the work that you have done and are doing, and there's a room full of people sitting on the edge of their seat waiting to hear your wisdom? Did you think it would all end up here? Look, the short answer is absolutely not. I mean, I... I um, I've actually got an ag, ag science degree, and you might wonder how I ended up with a sort of a career in mining, and I'm still in mining. And, you know, in my wildest dreams, I probably thought that one day I was going to own a cattle station in central Queensland uh, um, rather than, uh, you know, running, uh, you know, one of the world's biggest iron ore operations. Uh, so definitely not. And I think the, you know, the, the takeaway from all of that is that. You know, I often used to see people and they'd be plotting their careers. They'd be thinking about the next move if I do that and do do this, you know. I never thought about that. I just never thought about it, never entered my mind. All I wanted to do was to try and do, you know, the best job I could do as a, as a technical person back in those days. I actually worked for the government before I joined BHP, supporting farmers uh, in their uh, desire to, to um, preserve their land. So I never used to think about uh, where my career might go. Just wanted to do a, a really good job and, you know, just things happen. So I was, I was quite fortunate in that regard. It's really interesting when I speak to people who have filled the kind of roles you have. I, I once spoke to Jenny Purdy, who I know is a member of, of this group. She's currently the, the CEO of Adani Renewables in Australia. And I said the same thing to her. 
when I look at your resume, the, the list of jobs that you've done, it's almost as if it was always planned this way, that becoming an executive and working in one of the world's largest resource companies as an executive was planned from the start. But you say it wasn't, and it was always just plotting the next move. Yeah, look, de- definitely not. I mean, I, I remember I'd been in the ag sector for six years, and uh, quite frankly, I was bored. And I was sitting uh, at my office on a Monday morning and uh, reading The Weekend Australian, and there was an advertisement in the paper, a job ad, a senior environmental officer, Guignella Riverside Mine. And I thought, hmm, I might have a go at this. I applied for it, uh, got the interview. I mean, and, and it's quite an extraordinary sort of story in some respects because I, I, I didn't even know where Morinbar was in those days, to be honest with you. And I drove up there in a ute and uh, thinking I'd, you know, I'd get there at about six o'clock in the afternoon. I'd book into the local motel, you know, get ready, get dressed the next morning, spruce up a bit and go for my interview. Well, guess what? There was not a hotel or a motel room in Morinbar available. So what did I do? I slept in the front of the ute. Turned up like a, you know, a, a completely dishevelled uh, individual, unshaven, and managed to crack the job. So, so it's it's pretty interesting how things progress. And look, it, it was a break. That was one break for me, just being successful in getting that uh, that role. You know, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was completely overwhelmed, to be quite frank. You know, you, you go up there as an environmental scientist, asked to start to rehabilitate what looks like a moonscape, basically. But I just sort of started to methodically work my way through, had a great relationship with my boss at the time. And, and I guess my next break, I know you, you might have wanted to ask this, David, was uh, I was asked to apply for the project manager for the development of South Walker Creek Mine, which was a greenfield project. And I, there's probably some BH people in the room here that know it. I thought uh, my boss actually came to me and said, Tim, I want you to apply. I said, okay. I actually didn't think there was one scary of a chance of getting that job. You know, I was competing against uh, senior engineers with, uh, with far more credentials than I, uh, I had, but I was successful. And to be, you know, if you talk about breaks in, in careers, that was really the break that, uh, that enabled me to advance my career in BHP. And fundamentally because, um, you know, <laughs> without sounding pig-headed, we probably did an incredible job at South Walker Creek. I mean, I don't think there's any coal project uh, in Australia or, or globally that would have the return on investment of that place. We built it on the smell of an oily rag. I had a really tough boss at the time who was probably a mentor as well. You know, built a four million ton a year project for about 40 million bucks. You know, it paid for itself in about seven months and it's still producing and, and one of the best performing assets uh, today. So that backdrop enabled me to sort of then progress my career. So when you think about a leap that most people in this room have taken from technical expert to leading other technical experts, and then there's the leap to middle management and then to executive leadership, what are the lessons that, that you learned as you made those big steps through your career? Yeah, look, I'll reflect on some of my learnings, but also the observations that I've made. I mean, one of the great challenges uh, I had and probably still do is, is transforming from from being the doer to getting things done. And that's actually obviously a very tough transition when, you, when you're a, a technical person and, and you often think that no one can do the job as good as, as well as you either. So it is a struggle to step away from that. But the observations I've made in my career, I guess, is that in the mining industry, we have a tendency to want to promote the best tradesman on the shop floor or you know, the, or the best excavator driver. 
because they're really good at their trade. And invariably, look, sometimes it works, don't get me wrong, sometimes it does work, but many times it doesn't work because they, they're not good leaders. And one of the reasons they, they struggle in those leadership positions is because they don't have the ability to put themselves into an independent position, which is a position around making the decisions that are always right for the company. And that's where they struggle because they've got pre-existing relationships on the shop floor or in the truck fleet, which taint their ability to make an independent decision. And that's the real challenge, I think, for any, any uh, leaders, um, aspiring leaders, when you're looking at developing people and promoting people is uh, you've just got to apply that filter. It's, it's not always the best uh, technician that's going to actually give you the best leader. And the leadership role, particularly when you get into there, it, it's, it's really that position about being able to make independent decisions through the lens of, of what's right for the company. And that's not right, what's right for the company at that second or that minute. It's the broad perspective with a long-term view of what's right for the company. So that concept is not unique to the mining sector, obviously. Yeah. So many industries do exactly the same thing. I began my career as a teacher. Guess who they promote to become deputy principals and principals? People who are good teachers take them out of the classroom and, and put them in charge of a school and they no longer get to teach. It's the same kind of a concept. And we know that if you promote people who are great at a technical skill without having assessed their ability to at least grow into a leadership role, they are in a prime position to become a micromanager because that's what they're good at. And they are better than the people they're leading at doing that technical skill because they're more experienced and they stood out at that. So by looking that way, we're breeding micromanagers. So that's your biggest lesson jumping from technical expert to leader of technical experts. What about the next jump in your career where it's not about leading technical experts perhaps on site, it's into that executive leadership position. If you could go back in time and give that young man some advice who was about to take that leap, what would you tell yourself? Look, there's sort of two things. And for me, that transition probably occurred when I moved from general manager of, uh, of GEMCO which was BHP's um, manganese mine in, in the Northern Territory to, to um, head of mining for BHP Iron Ore and, and then to the head of the, the whole business. So that transformation, look, it's, uh, you know, I, I think the key there, you get to a point where you're starting to get a lot of advisors around you and people, you know, you're, you know I'll have a community affairs advisor, you know, there'll be legal people giving me advice, you know, there'll be HR people giving me advice. You know, one of the, one of the things I learned out of all of that is, look, you do need advisors, but you've got to back your judgment. You know, I'd say the, the errors or, or the times where I feel that I failed a little bit is because I didn't back my judgment and I've, I've listened too much to my advisors. You know, you do need them and, and you seek their advice. There's no, nothing wrong with that, but you've got to back your judgment and listen to the voice in the back of your head that's saying, that doesn't sound right and then go with that. Uh, so that, that was a, a big learning once you move into more senior roles. Look, the other thing is it just gets more political. Like, there's no doubt about it. It gets political. It's, it's political around the, uh, you know, the executive table. Um, there's people jockeying for positions. There's people with self-interest. There's people with egos. There's people who are not very humble about, uh, about things and, and managing and navigating through that whole mishmash of stuff is a skill in itself. And, uh, you know, I guess the, the executives that survive through that, you know, need to be very politically savvy and, uh, you know, that, that's... Definitely, and I think that's pretty well 
consistent across any sort of large organisation, you get that uh, level of, of sort of interplay of the politics of, of what's going on there. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. So the two lessons are that firstly, you have advisors who like to cross the line and become decision makers, but you're the decision maker and they're the advisors. And secondly, that the politics gets hard. The further you climb up the tree, the politics gets hard. That they're really interesting perspectives. I'd love to get a picture of who you were when you were running iron ore for BHP. What kind of a leader would your people have described you as? So you were aware of those two really powerful factors, but how did that play out on a behaviour level? Yeah, well, look, I, I think people would probably see me as a, as a very um, engaging uh, leader and, and one who is very often on the cold face. So I, I always made the time to get out to the sites, you know, attend a toolbox talk at 6.30 in the morning or, or, or at 6.30 at night. If there was a problem that was in the discussion and, they, you know, and it wasn't really going anywhere, I would then make the effort to actually go to that problem and have a look at it. And I, and I distinctly remember the discussions around, you know, how we're going to get, you know, 500 million tonnes of iron ore out of, the, out of the Port Hedland Port, which is a tidally constrained harbour. And I thought, well, one way to find out is I'm going to just go on a ship. And that's what I did. I sat next to the captain and I, and I spoke to him about it. You know, what are, what are the issues and the constraints? So from my perspective, that's what I thought my strength was, was actually being very engaging out there with the workforce. I actually felt that I managed down uh, extremely well, but maybe I didn't manage up as well as I could have done. I think there was people in the executive team that did that better than me. But, uh, you know, and I would think that people would remember me for those attributes, yeah. Well, you've, you've stolen my next question. So they're the things that come naturally to you. We all have strengths that we like to use because that's what we're good at and that's what comes naturally and that's what's got you where you were. What about the weaknesses that you became aware of the further you climbed the ladder that you could no longer ignore and you had to actively work on? Yeah, look, I, I would say it's probably my... my uh, you know, managing the politics in an organisation was was probably not a core strength of mine. I probably tended to be a bit of a detail person as well, um, rather than stepping up and uh, and trying to be a bit more strategic about some of the decisions we were making. So I would think that they would probably be the two sort of a bit of Achilles heels with, with my style. And, you know, the other thing I think is when you're trying to get buy-in to something in the organisation Sometimes it's not just as simple as having a conversation with that person and that person and that person. You've got to work the background, you know. And uh, and I probably didn't ha- I probably didn't have the patience sometimes to be able to do that. And I, and I think if you look at really successful CEOs and how they function, you know, before they've even got to the board meeting and they want that resolution passed, they've already worked the whole board in the background, got them over the line, had a coffee with them, and that's the skill in itself. Yeah. Tell me about mentors that you've had, people who've been important to you through your career and maybe given you the right word of advice when you need it or, or shown faith in you and given you that opportunity when you were at a crossroads? Yeah, look, I, 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 um, I knew this question was coming, by the way, David, but uh, I, really think that original, I, I really think I only had what I would describe as one mentor and it was my boss at BHP, Cole. And uh, 
So, you know, typically a mentor is not necessarily your boss, but uh, at the end of the day, he, he was hard but very fair. We were mates outside of work, but did that ever compromise or um, take any energy out of his passion to, to kick my butt if I hadn't done something to his expectations? Not at all. But he had that amazing skill of being able to have a very clear, disciplined line in the sand around his expectations of performance and behaviour. But if we went to his place for dinner that night, it was forgotten. You know, at the end of the day, I probably credit my ability to advance my career as a non-mining person in BHP through what I learned from him. I mean, I learned everything about mining from him and I, I don't back myself to, against most mining engineers on, on a holistic approach to running a, a mining business. That relationship that you described that you had with him, have you been able to be that to someone? Have you turned that around? Yeah, look, I think so. I mean, I, I, one of the things I am very proud of in my career, um, you know, uh, as a young GM, uh, completely uh, untested, uh, being sent to, to Groot Island, uh, you know, an island operation with my boss in Johannesburg at the time, and just completely rebuilding that team, uh, you know, somewhat of a dysfunctional, non-performing business on the chopping block, already been sold once, and then BHP took over Billiton, and I think they wanted to sell it again. And we were able to turn that business around. Now, out of the three people out of five of that management team that I selected and backed and looked after and, and actually fundamentally sort of, um, well, I wasn't involved in their promotions because I then moved on to iron ore, but I was certainly an advocate for them, all went to asset president level positions. And, I, and I'm actually quite proud that I was actually being able to, to create the opportunity for them. And to be quite frank, the business didn't back one of those people at all. I was probably the only person there who was, uh, who was backing him. And uh, well, one of them's an asset president still now. So, you know, that was quite a proud moment. And you know, you'd probably have to ask them whether I was a good mentor or, or not a good mentor. I don't think I was a particularly good mentor, but I probably had a style and a manner and a, and a bit of an innovation around my approach to doing things, which, uh, which they liked. And uh, and, you know, and, and we were, in my opinion, we were an outstanding uh, management team, yeah. So maybe one day they'll be asked questions at a lunch and they'll say your name, describe your relationship. <laughs> Possibly. That'd be nice. It, it, and it does get to the point in your career where, where it'd be nice if to think that that happens, that the helping to breed the next generation of leaders is up there with the most important things that you can do. Yeah, look, absolutely. Uh, you know, you see people in in senior roles and, and you look at the bench strength underneath them and you think, gee, who's going who's gonna to fill, fill the void if uh, X, Y uh, leaves the business or moves on? And, you know, a core attribute or skill for a leader is to make sure you, well, one, you don't feel threatened by having competent people underneath you because that's going to be a big problem. And two, that you're actually starting to create the space for someone to come in and fill your shoes. Now, whether they ultimately fill your position or create, you create that opportunity for somewhere else, that's a success either way, in my opinion, yeah. All right, so mining bosses, executive director, COO of some small little business, BHP Iron Ore in the West. How did you manage the rest of your life around this? There are, there are some roles there that would be pretty demanding. Did you do a good job of that through your career? No. <laughs> Tell me more, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, look, I was, a, I was an absent uh, dad for probably uh, close to 20 years. Uh, you know, I, I guess I was home on the weekends, most weekends. But uh, look, it's not easy. And, I, and I, look, you know, I, I don't really care what anyone says. 
the ability to to really have a work life balance that you know maybe we all might want. It, I don't know whether it's really a reality in some of those positions. Um, you know the intensity uh, of activity, the discipline that you need. It's probably one of the greatest challenges, uh, and uh, and I think you do have to make some compromises. If you had your time again, would you take the same roles that you took? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. You know. I'd, I don't, you know, uh, you know, uh, you, you know, you might want to ask my wife and kids and uh, uh, this question. Just so but happens we've got them on the yeah, line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, look, uh, look, we still had holidays and things like that. But look, it, it is demanding, and uh, you know, I don't think you'd get an out too much of a different answer for for others who'd been in those sorts of roles. Uh, and you know, we all try and we all promote within all large organisations around better work life balance, but in in reality, it's pretty tough. At that level, and will that ever change for that level? Look, I, I doubt it. Really, I mean, you know, some people, you know, uh, with extraordinary capability, probably are better at it than others. You know, much more capability than me. But uh, look, I, I think even those people probably struggle to a certain extent. When you um, sail off into the sunset and retire, maybe it's to golf or fishing or whatever it is you choose to do, reading lovely books. What will you look back on? over your entire career, the one thing and say, I did that. That's the thing that I'm proud of. It's interesting. It's probably not the, the biggest thing that I did, but I actually feel very proud about what we achieved uh, developing South Walker Creek Mine. As, a, you know, as I said, I was, a, I was an environmental scientist or an ag scientist being put into a position of a project manager on a site. And uh, I just think we, we did things uh, so differently in a very capital constrained environment Probably had a lot of people thinking there's no way that, uh, you know, this, uh, this what, a modular prep plant that's designed for two years. Well, guess what? It's 20 years and it's still there now. You know, just, you know, that th- that was successful and you can look back at it and it's operating now. So for me, that was probably, you know, as I said earlier, it was the, it was the enabler for my career to advance. And when I look back at it now, I mean, I could sort of understand why. Um, I just, it was very, very satisfying. And the other reason it was satisfying, I was, probably unusually, I was there for six years. So it's very rare that you get to build a project and then operate a project. So we built it over the first two or three, and then I was there operating it over the next four. And, you know, that, that was extraordinarily satisfying. You know, most people are project directors. They build it, move on and leave it for someone else to fix up all their mistakes, you know. So, yeah, so, yeah, very satisfying time. You know, when I was looking over your resume, I noticed that well, you, you finished up a role in 2006, General Manager Magnanese. Yes. BHP. Since then, you haven't had a job for more than two years. Did you realise that? Um, about yeah, two years about is two the years, max. Yeah, yeah, that's probably about right. And there have been a number of them. Is that a sign of you or is that the way it works at the executive level? Is that how you prefer to operate? Oh, there's probably two things there. One was there's some sort of family issues and wanting to come back to West, uh, back to Queensland. Look, I, I think you've got to be probably want to be in roles for slightly longer than two years. I mean, I, you know, one was a takeover, and there was a few other factors that that came to play there. You know, look, the life to be quite honest though, the lifespan of senior executives does seem to be getting shorter. I think two years is probably a bit too short to be in roles, but uh, you know, people that last out four years, they're probably doing quite well. Um, you know, I, I do think there tends to be more of uh, a churn's not the right word, really. Uh, well, maybe it is the right word, but 
you know, if you see someone in a senior executive role for sort of longer than four years, it's actually probably quite unusual. But, you know, I've, I've subsequently sort of moved into the junior mining space, made that decision, um, you know, about three, four years ago now. And I'm very happy in this space. You know, I've, I'm involved uh, in two companies as an executive director of Mayer Resources, which was recently listed on the stock exchange and CCAP. You know, I guess I'm probably here in the capacity of CCAP. So I do expect to hang out for a lot longer than two years. <laughs> in those ones. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. Now, it would be remiss of me not to ask you about a particular person that you work for. One of the most high-profile people in, in this industry. You spent a number of years, a couple of years, maybe just over two, working for Hancock Prospecting. You had you were in a very senior role. You had direct, probably daily contact with Gina Reinhart. I'm fascinated by her. I think in some ways the country's fascinated by her. She's not a hero. She can sometimes be a villain and, or, and a hero at the same time. But the fact is she has built an enormous empire and done achieved her goals very successfully. What insight can you give us to Gina Reinhardt? I guess to make it a more pointed question, what's Gina Reinhardt good at? Yeah, look, I mean, so I'm I'm not going to make any comments around the sort of the public things that have played out in the public space. Gina is an extraordinary uh, person. There's no, no question about that. I learned a lot from Gina. Commercially, her, you know, commercially she, she's incredible. Her attention to detail is unbelievable, second to no one, uh, to be honest. You know, she'll pick up a document that's uh, two or three inches thick, read it, uh, every word on it, and, uh, you know, pick out something on page 302 and, and uh, say, well, that's incorrect. So, and her work ethic, her capacity to work is just extraordinary. I mean, she seldom leaves the office before sort of 1 or 2 a.m. So she's, she's a very driven, uh, a successful woman. And, uh, you know, I, I admire her for that. I definitely admire her f- for that. You don't build an empire like that without having that sort of determination and drive. But the most extraordinary thing, I think, is her belief in herself and her assets. You know, through the the vagaries of uh, of commodity prices. You know, you, you watch big companies come into coal. I hope there's no one from Peabody here. You know, buy at the top of the cycle, sell at the bottom of the cycle, and and do it two or three times. But Gina just believed in her assets. She believed in the Asian growth story, and she believed that the Asians would always need this iron ore and these commodities to feed the growth of those nations. So she was picking up tenements while the majors are letting them go at the, you know, when iron ore prices were $22, $22 a tonne. So it was that belief was extraordinary that, and she just stuck by it. So her strategic, her ability to have that vision and stick to it rather than flop and change every time the prices go up or down or this, that and the other was just extraordinary. And of course, she's now uh, really doing that in the agri-space. You know, I think she's now Australia's uh, largest landholder for the same reason, she's, she's really believing that whole food story and the world's going to need to need to be fed as it grows and more land's consumed by, uh, you know, uh, developments. So I hope that answered the it question. Does. Yeah, it's good insight. Yeah. The one thing that I I will take away is is the ability, and this is rare, where we we're all 
we all, most of us tend one way or the other to be oriented towards detail and be very good at the detail or be oriented towards big picture thinking, the vision and putting big concepts together. But from your summary, that, that's her superpower. She does both. She has this vision for China is going to need iron ore over the next decade. I'm going to, I'm going to manage my resources this way. Same with agriculture. But at the same time, as you say, she'll read a thousand page document and pick out something on paragraph in a paragraph on page 302. That's a superpower, isn't it? Look, it is. But uh, look, I, I would actually say this, and you know, a lot of people don't like working for detailed bosses, but honestly, some of the most effective and best bosses I've had are those that can sort of do both. They are, have got a good attention to detail because, you know, at the end of the day, you're learning off, uh, off their ability to pick up those mistakes or errors. So, you know, look, there's, there's always a, a conflict going on between, you know, being over-detailed orientated rather than stepping back and allowing people to do their, their work. That tension will always be there and it's probably one of the, the tensions as a leader you're constantly trying to manage. But my experience has been that uh, my really good bosses have tended to be pretty detail, uh, well, like strong attention to detail, fairly detail focus, but with that double skill of actually having the, the, the big picture thinking as well. I have two questions left. So your career has sat right in the sweet spot for some significant development of opportunities for women in mining. What have you noticed across your career from the beginning, from when you started and first stepped on a mine to where we are today? How is this sector for women? Look, in the, clearly in the, in the early days in the Bowen Basin, I mean, it, it was a bloke's world. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you'd walk into a crib room, there would not be one, one uh, uh, lady in the, in the crib room. A few sort of uh, started to trickle in in terms in the sort of the blue collar space, uh, you know, probably in the, um, in the, when would that have been, the late 90s. I then, so it was very much, you know, a man's a, world, a man's world uh, in coal and come back to that. I then moved to uh, Gemco and it was interesting, uh, we, you know, even before I got there, there was actually a few uh, women truck drivers in, in our crew and uh, I think a lot of that was because of the influence that was coming back from Western Australia. When I got to Western Australia, there was certainly a lot more women in the blue collar space, and I'm not talking about the white collar space. And since then, I mean, I think there's been a massive multiplication and and uh, and a huge increase in numbers. Personally, I think it's been great for the industry, and uh, I think one of the the reasons perhaps we we have some sort of industrial confrontation over here that doesn't seem to get resolved is because it is a bit of a bloke's uh, ego world. You know, I think the West Australian industry embraced women in mining and blue-collar section in the blue-collar space uh, much earlier than Queensland did and embraced it successfully. And, um, you know, uh, my opinion is that, uh, you know, if, if you talk about, say, truck drivers, I'd much on the whole, I'd much rather have a, a woman truck driver than a, than a guy driving a truck because... Um, Women, this, you know, and I don't want to generalise because it's dangerous in a room full of women, but discipline, following process and procedure is, tends to be a bigger strength than for guys. So, uh, you, know, they, you know, you tend to have... You know, I don't Better on the machine. I don't have the stats, but I, I, I think uh, if you did have the stats, you know, your maintenance and, um, on equipment and equipment damage would be lower. Yeah. All right, last question, and then, you, then we're going to throw you to the wolves. You, you, you seem to me a man who has developed his whole career, and, and I'm imagining that that won't stop anytime soon. What's next for you? 
I don't specifically mean a role, but you can talk about that. But what's next for you as a professional and as a person and what you're growing? Look, I'm, I'm very engaged in what I'm doing now. Um, very excited about what we're trying to build in, in PNG, which is really a nation building uh, company in, in Maya Resources. We've got a great opportunity in PNG, and this is not really a plug uh, about the company, but it, it sort of uh, probably uh, explains, you know, my interest. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a country with uh, you know low GDP per capita, you know, thirteen percent access to to grid electricity. We've got a you know set of assets up there that we really want to make a difference. So that that's a, 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 a but we're commercial, right? Don't, don't get me wrong, we're we're a hundred percent commercial business, and we run hard, and I'm working incredibly hard. So that. That's clearly my focus for quite a few years ahead, you know, hopefully longer than two. So, break that trend, uh, hey? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that, that is clearly my focus. So I'm really enjoying that. I'm actually a part-time executive, so I spend uh, another part of my time with a company called CCAP, which is an advisory business, and uh, I'm a part owner of that business. And look, it's great. It, it's very rewarding being out of the, you know, the, the big end of town is fantastic, don't get me wrong, but- the reward that you get from sort of starting something from very little or nothing to growing a business is actually, quite quite honestly, I think I've, I'm probably having almost the best time uh, of, of my career right now. I'm really enjoying it. So it's, it's, it's refreshing and, and it's great. And I think the good thing about that is that, you know, you can have careers and you can change probably two or three times. I mean, I probably see four distinct phases in my career. One is an ag sort of scientist, one is a as a sort of a, an environmental scientist in a company, one as a, as a general manager, executive in a large mining company, and now as an executive in a, in a startup, a growing, emerging powerhouse. You know, we, we want to be the next BHP. <laughs> Tim, absolutely intriguing. I've, I've really enjoyed our chat. We're going to throw some questions to the group now, but, uh, but thank you for answering my questions. It was absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much. Is there anyone who has a question for Tim? Who's got something they'd like to know that, that we didn't hit on in that, in that conversation? I might have to repeat it. I'll, I'll repeat it after you answer. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not a crystal ball forecaster. So the question's about the Adani yeah. coal mine. Look, I, look, look, there's momentum there. There's no doubt about it. To be honest with you, I'm not close enough to it. I mean, a lot of my focus now is, is really obviously with our P&G business. Yeah, I mean, without putting a bet or sitting on the fence, I'll probably just make a couple of comments. I mean, momentum with thermal coal is pretty well, you know, it's not there anymore. Um, financing thermal coal projects is extraordinarily difficult at the moment, and, and I would say that most of the commercial banks won't touch thermal coal projects, which means that the funding has to come from other sectors. You know, the, I think the resources there, it's probably an okay resource from what I hear, but that's going to be their challenge. You know, and, and community uh, and NGO expectations and, uh, and to a certain extent government probably changed a little bit the momentum with Trump coming into power. That's probably been a, a bit of a tailwind, I suppose. But look, they've got momentum. They've got a tough job in front of them. But, I, you know, so I don't really want to make a call either way because I actually don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's a difficult one, that one. Yeah. Yeah, look, the... Uh, even back in my early days in the in the industry, I always thought we were hopeless at describing what we're about. And uh, I don't know whether we've got any better, to be honest with you. And I, I think as, a, as an industry sector, I mean, 
you know, coal's going to be here for a while. There's no doubt about it. It's still probably the most uh, cost-effective way of, of generating baseload power other than maybe um, uh, nuclear. You know, we're a long way from, from being able to use renewables for generating baseload power. And I just think the energy sector and the mining sector has just got to get got to be smarter and a bit more innovative about how it tells a story, how, how it supports its story. And, uh, you know, I just don't think we've been particularly good at it. <laughs> oh, I mean, yes and no. I mean, look, I've, I think it's somewhat, is, it's somewhat individual, you know, like I think the first point I'd make is women are much better than multitasking than, than blokes. So I, I think uh, some people will be able to do it and get that balance right, but I think it's tough to be able to do that. In terms of, look, I think companies are trying pretty hard about, about more flexible workplaces. You know, it's, look, I'll be honest with you, I reckon it's a tough one in, in, in the sort of the sectors, that, the mining sector and the energy sectors, capital intensive sectors where, you know, people need to be on the ground, needed to be doing things. You know, as a white collar executive, it can probably work. You probably can make it work. You know, you might be asking the wrong person because I think I might be a little bit old-fashioned sometimes here. I really like people to be at the office. That's how I like to build teams and feel like a team environment. And if you've got people taking time off here, time off there, working from home, I actually reckon you, you sometimes lose the, the drumbeat of the organisation. You know, sure enough, they can dial in on the phone or be on the end of a, at the end of a Skype call or something like that. So, you know, you need to really think about that the power of the team being together, the energy that that brings into the team, the pride and the enjoyment that it brings to the team, the diversity of thinking that it brings in, into the team. Now, you, if you can capture that without having being in there, actually, you know, well and good, but I, I think it's tough, you know, and I think you do lose a little bit. I think there's a whole discussion in that answer right there, Tim. Any other questions? Good questions, by the way. Uh, look, I, I think... Um, don't try too hard. Just try and do your job to the best of your ability without being too political around plotting and, and this, that, thinking, well, if I do that, I can do this. I mean, I, I just think that uh, you will always get, you know, irrespective of gender, you will always get rewarded for outstanding performance and creating value for your organisations. And uh, I think if you just stick to that, focus of doing a really good job adding value for your organizations being really good at what you do things happen that is a fantastic piece of advice to leave it on tim tim thank you so much those were fabulous answers i really enjoyed listening to you speak ladies and gentlemen we think we should thank tim crossley thanks That was Tim Crossley. I was really impressed to meet Tim. He has that air of calm wisdom about him that we expect from those who've worked so effectively at the executive level. I appreciated his honesty about the things he does well and the things he's not so great at. And I admired his courage sticking to his guns in a room full of young professional women about his objection to flexible working arrangements. I completely disagree with him, but I respect his point of view. Mostly, though, I was moved by his honesty when it came to talking of the sacrifices he made in his family life for the sake of his work. It's a bleak outlook that there's no way around it for those who fancy a career in the C-suite, 
and it's well worth another conversation at another time. Thanks to Wimmark for inviting me to the event and for being such a gracious host. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Tim on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.